There is this book called the lectionary. For those of you who don't know what that is, it is a book that suggests four passages for every Sunday for pastors to choose from for their scriptures. And it it goes in a three-year cycle, so it's not really repetitive. You probably don't even know that it happens. But I took a look this Sunday at the four suggested passages, and I thought, I have to preach on this one. Not because I liked it or I liked the themes that were prepared it, but I just thought this is so weird. So I was drawn to it. There's a pastor who I admire up in Denver. Her name is Nadia Bowles Weber. She's Lutheran. And she has a name for this parable or a title. She calls it the worst parable ever. <laughs> and when I chose it and told the staff as they're trying to pick music, they came back to me and said, are you sure you want to preach on that? So given all those reactions, I'm going to ask you to pray with me this morning. <laughs> Prepare our hearts, O oh God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voices but your own, so we may hear your word and also act upon it. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Worst parable ever. It kind of sums it up. A king holds a wedding feast, inviting all his friends, and on the day of that really big event, nobody shows. So he sends his servants out to remind them. Still, nobody comes. He sends slaves again who explain, come on, the table is set. The warm bread is fresh from the oven. The wine is poured. Come. Well, those friends were just too busy for that feast. They kill those annoying slaves who won't stop bothering them. So the king sends more slaves out into the town, and he asks them to fetch anyone. It doesn't matter who it is, who they encounter. His feast will not go bad. Someone is hungry and thirsty out there for what there is to offer. Now, typically in parables, the figure who's the king is the one that we equate with God. I really struggle with that, given this story. I mean, the God I know loves, forgives, and has unending mercy and grace to offer. This king, the ruler over all the land, seems to have a kind of fragile ego. He's petty and volatile. He seeks vengeance when he is slighted. Something isn't quite right when you try to equate this earthly leader with God. Fortunately, there are a number of scholars who are on my side and agree with me. They point out that this king bears a much closer resemblance to the Roman authorities of the time when this passage was written. Other scholars point out that since Jesus is addressing the Pharisees in this parable, you could argue that the king represents them, and the guests are the differing, disagreeing factions of the Jews for the day. And those factions would include the Jews who are Jesus' followers. And just as a reminder, there have been times in the past when groups have used this as a Jewish versus Christian debate. There were no Christians at this time yet. 
So with all that, it's kind of difficult to sort things out. And it made me think about a story that a professor of mine in seminary um, engaged us with. His name is Andy Dearman. I think a a few of you have taken classes with him, and he's come here to the church to teach. And he took a group of us to Egypt and Israel and Palestine. And it is incredible, I have to tell you, to see the historical sites that you read about in Scripture. It just gives you goosebumps when you're standing there. But Professor Dearman wanted us to really get into the the facts and and the truth of this trip. So he told us about this scale that he had made up from one to three. And if he said a site was one, that meant that all the scholars agreed that the likelihood was this was an actual site where the events took place. But if a site was a three, it meant that tradition only upheld this as an important site, not the archaeology, not the other factual evidence that we have today. So as we entered the synagogue in the archaeological site of Capernaum, where scripture tells us that Jesus read from the Torah scrolls and taught the people, Professor Dearman told us, folks, this is a one. This is a one. And when we walked a little further into Capernaum, we saw a sign near a house that had been excavated, and it labeled the house as the house of Peter. Here, Professor Dearman said to us, this is at at most a two. It was a house, and they're pretty sure it was old enough to exist at the time of Peter. But there was no actual evidence linking it to Peter. So one day we were in Jerusalem, and Professor Dearman got my attention and said, Lisa, what do you think of that sign over there, that advertisement? Is that advertising a site that's a three, a two, or a one? And I looked at the sign, and I puzzled over it, and it was advertising a trip. They would take you on a bus to the very site where the Good Samaritan rescued the man who had been beaten and robbed. And I was looking at this sign, and I was thinking about it, and he said, let me give you a hint. It's a parable. (laughs) Of course, this was a three. A parable is a story. It's an allegory. It didn't really take place. It was used to teach a lesson. So if we take Professor Dearman's stamp of approval that we can interpret parables a little bit further, I'm going to stretch this parable a little bit further than maybe you've heard other people stretch it. So the question I want to ask, and the one I want you to ask yourself, is what if we were the king? What if we're supposed to be the ones figuring out who to invite to the feast? And in order to work this idea a little further, I want to share a modern parable with you. There was this seminary student. It was her first semester in school. She was traveling to be with her family at Thanksgiving. She settled into her window seat in the plane. She prefers window seats because she can look out and see all of creation as they fly by. Now, there's a risk getting into that window seat. It kind of means you're trapped next to your seatmates for the duration of the flight. She thought, I hope whoever sits next to me is really sleepy. She pulled out some schoolwork. She happened to have her large red study Bible with her. And highlighter in hand, she began reading for her Hebrew Bible class, underlining as she went. 
Eventually, someone sat in the aisle seat of her row. There was still one empty. The person looked down at the seminary student's book and quickly looked away, an expression of panic on her face. The seminary student smiled a little. She recognized that look. She'd seen it before. That seatmate clearly would not welcome an invitation to this wedding feast. A few minutes later, another passenger came and settled into the middle seat of that row. And as that person noticed the book that the seminary student was reading, he gave a huge smile and began talking. You're reading a Bible, he said, in a voice a little louder than the seminarian felt comfortable with. (laughs) Why, yes, yes, I am, she said politely, shrinking down in her seat, highlighting another verse. Does that mean you're a Christian, the man asked, in a voice even louder than he had used before. Yes, yes, I am, she said. Why are you a Christian, he asked. And so their conversation continued for three hours. (laughs) Eventually, they both got off and parted ways, thank God, to find their different connecting flights. Once again, the seminary student settled into her window seat, reached into her backpack. This time, she pulled out a nondescript textbook to continue her work. Was it a missed opportunity? Maybe. I'll never know. And yes, that seminary student was me. I remember every part of that story to this day. I could pick this man out of a lineup if I had to. I remember feeling embarrassed and uncomfortable. I remember lowering my voice in the hopes that he would lower his, no dice, I think it actually made him speak louder as I lowered my voice. But I've always wondered, did I mess up that day? If I was the king who had an eager guest in front of me, and instead of extending him an invitation to this feast, I passed him by. I missed an an opportunity to invite him here. A couple of weeks ago, a few of us traveled up to Kansas City to attend a conference that was held in Reverend Adam Hamilton's church, the Church of the Resurrection. And I know some of you will recognize that name. For others, just so you know, he's he's the pastor of the largest United Methodist Church in the world. They have a membership close to 20,000 people, spread out over four campuses in the Kansas City area. And he's also written a large number of studies and books, many of which we've used here at this church. During one of his talks, Reverend Hamilton told his airplane story. His was pretty different from mine. Reverend Hamilton carries a pocket New Testament with him wherever he goes. And he goes, he travels an awful lot. And he has a habit of reading it, at the very least, at the beginning and end of every flight. One day, the flight attendant had already walked by him several times while he was reading. She was helping people get settled in their seats. And on a trip past him, she said, that's a good book you're reading. He replied, yes, yes it is, as she whisked by. On the next trip past, she said, do you read that book often? He replied, yes, yes, I try to. Now, she asked Reverend Adam Hamilton if he reads the Bible often. (laughs) The next time by, he said, 
she said, yes, I've tried to read it too, but you know, it's so confusing, and I just have trouble understanding it. Reverend Hamilton agreed. Yes, it can be confusing. This conversation continued much in this way. At one point, she said to him, you probably go to church too. (laughs) And he replied, yes, I go almost every Sunday. And she said, I try to, but it's so hard getting the kids there. And I work sometimes on Sunday mornings. It's just so hard to get into that habit of going all the time. Again, Reverend Hamilton said, I understand that it can be. As the flight continued, Reverend Hamilton said he heard a voice in his head saying over and over again, give that flight attendant your Bible. He took it out and for the rest of the flight, he underlined a verse in every chapter, a favorite verse, one he thought she could understand. At the end, he waited up front by the cockpit for her to exit. And he said, I really want to give you my Bible. She, of course, tried to say no, and he insisted. He told her about underlining the verses that were his favorites and said, if you read this Bible just a little bit every time you take off and land when you're seated in your jump seat, I bet you'll finish it in a year or so. Then I just ask that you look for someone else to give it to. With tears in her eyes, she accepted his very generous gift. Inside, he told us that he had written a note to her. Please read this Bible, and when you're done, please pass it to someone else. And until you find a church of your own, you could check out this website, churchoftheresurrection.org. I hear the pastor there is pretty good. (laughs) He explains scriptures pretty well so it can be understood. And they post sermons for people like you to watch. And you might find something you like. Now that's a king looking for someone to invite to the feast. I like to think I've grown a bit since my seminary days. I like to think I keep my eyes and ears open for people to invite here to the feast. And usually it happens when I'm wearing my church name badge in hospitals and places like that. But it can be so hard. It can be so intimidating. I mean, who wants an encounter with the wrong kind of person? Who wants an encounter with that first seatmate of mine who quickly looked away when she saw I was reading the Bible? I get why the king only invited his friends. It's so much easier to talk about your faith and our church with people you already know are Christian. People who already go to church. But how does that do much of anything? The king in our parable today, he sends out his slaves to invite everyone, the good and the bad. That's what the text says. Now, I'm not thinking that we're going to start standing out out on street corners and handing out tracts. But I am thinking we could keep our eyes open. We could wear our faith a little more on the outside rather than keeping it on the inside. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty tired that the people who get all the attention, who wear their faith on the outside, the people who talk the most and the loudest about religion, the ones who wear their faith outside are the ones whose ideas are so far out there, so far away from the majority in the middle. Maybe we could try to add a more moderate voice into the public mix. Maybe we could provide a different example 
for others to see and experience of who Christians are. We could try and see who's in our midst, who could use exposure to the gospel story. What colleague has just separated from their spouse? What neighbor has found out they have cancer? What friend is struggling in school? According to the Pew Research, only 37% of people say they attend church every Sunday. And Pew Research has a little asterisk beside the 37%, and they say those are the people who say they attend. That means the number is actually a lot lower. So that means at least 63% of every person, all the people you encounter, your colleagues, your neighbors, and your friends, do not attend church on Sunday morning. I don't know about you, but I don't want to miss another opportunity like I did on that airplane. An opportunity where someone's trying to engage me about my faith experience, and I back down because of my own discomfort. We are surrounded by those people, according to the Pew Research. After his airplane experience, Reverend Hamilton went back to his church, and he ordered pocket New Testaments for all his congregation. And it has the the church's name on the back, and it has this message here. Carry this pocket New Testament with you wherever you go. If you meet someone who needs a Bible, give this one to them, and we will give you another one. Reverend Hamilton handed them out to his congregation and encouraged everyone to read them on airplanes, to read them in coffee shops and on park benches. Leave them in your car, on your coffee table or your desk at work. Wait for someone to ask you about it, like the flight attendant asked him. Wait for someone to engage you. Then Reverend Hamilton challenged us to do the same, to bring this idea back to our congregations. And he asked us to report back to him how it goes. As you exit today, we have a gift for you in back. It's a pocket New Testament. Ours are blue. We've put a sticker in the back with our own message on it. And we encourage you to take it with you. Read it. You never know, you might find something that resonates with you. Read it in the carpool line. Read it in front of your children. Read it when you're waiting in line. If the only thing that comes from this is that you read the Bible more often, that is not a failed experiment in my eyes. But just wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit to nudge you to give someone an invitation, to create an encounter for you where you can give someone else this Bible. You'll know when it's right. Pew Research says those numbers are definitely in your favor. And when someone asks you about it, offer it to them. We've got more. Friends, we know the people around us who go to church. We know which friends already have a deep faith. We know which already have a seat at this table. And our challenge is to be the king who's out there ready to encounter people who are looking for an invitation to the feast. And our challenge is to give them that invitation. Amen. Amen.